This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the Companion Educational Organization, the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. Each week here on America's Voice for Energy, I have the opportunity to interview experts on the topic of each week's column. Every, every week I write an energy-themed column that is published in a variety of major online publications and many newspapers. You can find each week's column on Breitbart.com, townhall.com, and on the, at the American Spectator at spectator.org. This week my topic is Obama's Green Energy Plans, kill jobs, hurt consumers, and cost taxpayers. In this week's column, I address three very different stories that are smaller topics, maybe underreported, stories you probably don't know anything about, but the common factor in them is that each one of them is a result of Obama's energy policies, and as the title makes clear, they kill jobs, hurt consumers, and cost taxpayers. So first today, we're going to talk with Will Yateman, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I've known Will for years, but he connects to this week's show, and he's never been on America's Voice for Energy before, because of a report that he wrote for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce talking about the EPA's regional haze program. So, Will, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you so much for having me, Marita. Well, I'm delighted that you could join us. And, and you know, I did not, I know you've, I've seen your name in New Mexico stuff, primarily with my buddy uh, Paul Guessing of the Rio Grande Foundation. I see your name occasionally there. But, you know, what I hate to say, Will, as long as I've known you, and as much as I follow energy and specifically New Mexico, where my organizations are based, I was not aware of this particular report that you'd written. And, and I hate to say it, until I did the research for this week's column, I was not really aware of um, the roots of the San Juan Generating Station, which, of course, I followed that and I followed the coal mine story. But I didn't really realize that it was rooted in regional haze. So I suspect, if I didn't know this, Probably most of our listeners don't either. So can you start today by explaining for us what is the EPA's regional haze program? You bet. Um, it's actually it's a visibility regulation. So its, it's purpose, it's, it's a Clean Air Act rule, um, is to improve the view. That's its purpose. The way it's been used by EPA, however, renders it one of the most outrageous regulations of this administration. And it, it is a pity. That's, that's saying something, I should, <laughs> I should know. I mean, this <laughs> yeah, is the administration. Yeah, so there's been plenty of outrageous regulations. Uh, exactly. I mean, you know, the, the, um, but this, this perhaps takes the cake. This is a rule um, that has cost primarily Western states five billion dollars. That's at least five billion dollars. It's probably closer to six. And, and these costs have fallen disproportionately on New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Arizona, Arkansas, Wyoming, and Utah. Um, and the, the, the benefits, if you will, of, 
regulation that, again, has these palpable costs. It was $700 million in New Mexico, $2 billion in Texas, a billion in Oklahoma, um, you know, and hundreds of millions in these other states. Real palpable costs, um, but the benefits were literally invisible. And, and we know this because computer software modeling allows us to project, you, you know, we, through the computer, we, we can get a side-by-side screen image of visibility, at, you know, in these states um, with EPA's rule and visibility without EPA's rule. And in each case, the benefits are literally invisible. Um, they are imperceptible to the human eye. And this is something that EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, does not dispute. We have noted this a number of times in the regulatory process. We've noted this a number of times in litigation. Um, they nonetheless press forward. Um, so it's, I guess it's, it's an affront, it's an outrageous rule on many fronts. It's, one, we've got these ridiculous costs versus benefits. And, and if I might make the example of New Mexico, you alluded to the San Juan Generating Station. Um, Ratepayers in, in, in the PNM system, um, you're on Which the Which includes me. Which includes you. Okay, so there was, uh, in, in lieu of paying $700 million in compliance costs, the utility agreed to pay about $200 million worth of controls, but then shut down coal-fired power plants. So this was, you know, it was, I, the EPA gave them this, 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 uh, this terrible bargain, if you were, a terrible deal. It said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You either spend mm-hmm. $700 million in unnecessary controls, or you shut down these coal-fired power plants. As a result of this decision, Ratepayers in the PNM system are on the hook for $150 million for nothing more than the privilege of not using electricity at a coal-fired power plant. I mean, try to wrap your head around that. You're literally burning $150 million for nothing. Um, and this is because you're shuttering a coal-fired power plant due to this rule decades early. Um, the way utility economics work, um, in essence, these billion-dollar investments for these power plants are paid off over 40 years. If right. you uh, shut down the power plant 20 years too early, the ratepayers are still on the hook for the money. Um, so in New Mexico, to use that example, as a result of this rule, not only in the hook for $200 million worth of controls that won't do anything, you're on the hook for an additional $150 million literally for the privilege of not using power. Um, so costs are palpable, benefits are invisible, um, and it's also an affront to the cooperative, uh, cooperative federalism regime established by the, the Clean Air Act. It's an affront to states, to be perfectly frank. The regional haze program was set by Congress to be unique of all the Clean Air Act programs. It is the only Clean Air Act program where states are in the lead. States are supposed to be the primary decision makers. Um, and the reason for this is quite simple. When it comes to public health regulations, the ones that actually, um, you know, again, deal with actual human beings and public health issues, um, the Congress wanted kind of EPA to take the lead. Now, that's debatable, but, but you know, I can, I've got qualms with that, but that's the way the Congress acted. With respect to aesthetic regulations, and here I'm talking about the regional Hayes rule, um, Congress wanted for states to be in charge. So we've got this situation whereby in all the states that I've listed, all told it's 14 states, um, and they're all west of the Mississippi, um, EPA has rejected these state plans and in their stead imposed these federal plans that cost 
hundreds of millions of dollars, all told they cost you know about $5.7 billion, don't achieve any visibility improvement whatsoever, and it's running roughshod over you know these plans that states spent thousands of man hours or you know work hours um, to put together. So it's it really is uh, just an awful rule on a number of fronts. And, and one your your listeners might be asking yourself, you know, why on earth would the agency pursue this irrational rule, this rule that literally? achieves nothing. I mean, achieves invisibility. Um, yeah, of course, I was, I was going to ask, what's prompted this? What has pushed uh, this? Because as you, you've made it very clear, it is, it is a ridiculous rule. And I addressed it this week because um, they, the coal mine, which is at the plant, there's a coal mine right at the mouth of the power plant. They were put to get, they were, the power plant was put there because the coal is there. Um, they just announced this week layoffs of 85 people. So in the last few months, they've seen a quarter of their workforce at the coal mine laid off, and the uh, workforce at the power generating station, uh, while they at PNM has promised not to lay anyone off, they're not hiring anyone, and they're, they're reducing their workforce by attrition. And in the last two years, uh, from, from two years ago, their workforce is down 20% at that power plant. And the coal mine was considered one of the key employers of that region. So they're, they're seeing a real definite, definite impact. And uh, just, just to make sure you're tracking with me here, Will, we've got about three and a half minutes left. Uh, you bet. Um, those are the direct, palpable human costs. So I had mentioned the, the kind of dispersed costs that all the ratepayers were feeling. You mentioned that the job losses, um, that's by design both these costs and these job losses. That's by design from the EPA. Um, the purpose of this rule, as was the purpose of a, a suite of regulations enacted by this EPA since 2009, is to impose as many costs on coal-fired power plants as possible, regardless whether or not they're necessary, regardless whether or not they make any sense. And the purpose here is to make coal power less competitive. The purpose is to shutter coal-fired power plants. Um, here, EPA's mission is the same as that of its ally, the Sierra Club. They both want to get beyond coal, regardless whether or not that's in the best interest of the country. It certainly is not. Um, so that's the ulterior motive. That's why we've got ridiculous regulations like the Regional Hayes Rule. That's why we've got ridiculous regulations like the Utility Act, which would cost coal-fired power plants across the country $10 billion in order to protect a putative population of pregnant subsistence fisherwomen who consume more than 200 pounds of self-caught fish during their pregnancies. I mean, I submit these women don't exist, but again, EPA imposed a $10 billion rule on their account per year. Um, so the upshot is the, the reason we're inundated with these ridiculous rules that don't do anything um, but cost billions of dollars is it's a, a very definite design. The agency wants to burden coal fire coal power with as much cost as possible, render it as uncompetitive as possible, and lead to the shuttering of as many coal-fired power plants as possible. Um, and they've been all too successful, alas. Yeah, they most certainly have. We've got just about a minute and a half left, Will. Early on in our conversation, you mentioned litigation. Can you uh, address that briefly? Oh, indeed, Will. I mean, this is a state-by-state -state regulation, is this regional haze rule. Um, so the litigation is unfolding on a state-by-state -state basis. Okay. So far, the agency has won the preponderance of cases, I think, of the five. It's won four. Um, it only lost in North Dakota. I will note that New Mexico, 
for whatever reason, capitulated. I mean, this is the state could have fought. The state was actually number one in line to fight. They could have set the precedent. They had a great case for whatever reason. Um, they, the state demurred. Governor Martinez did not want to fight this battle, even though it was a good battle to fight. Um, a number of other cases, including Texas, Wyoming, Utah, and Arkansas, are currently unfolding, and uh, we certainly hope in those circuit courts um, that common sense prevails. Well, yeah, it's really amazing. I appreciate you giving us the insight on it. And this 64-page uh, report, I believe it is, that you put together for the Chamber of Commerce uh, is, is very uh, insightful. And this was written, when did you write this report? Oh, golly, I believe that came out uh, in the, the end uh, 2012, the end of 2012. Okay, I know it wasn't brand new, but uh, you've got a lot of graphs and pictures in it that make it uh, real clear to understand, and I would encourage folks to check it out. And there's a link to it in my column, so you can just uh, go to my column and uh, do a search on Obama's green energy plans, kill jobs, hurt consumers, and cost taxpayers, and you'll be able to find the link to the report so you can learn more about uh, this crazy rule. But I appreciate you updating it for us, Will. We've been talking with Will Yateman, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, about specifically New Mexico's regional haze rule. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy, Will. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, Executive Director of Energy Makes America Great and the Citizens Alliance for Responsible Energy. This week I'm thrilled to have back with us again a good friend, Sterling Burnett, who is a senior research fellow with the Heartland Institute and an expert on all things energy. Sterling, it's great to have you back again. Good to be on again, Marita. You know, you and I always have such good conversations, and our closing guest this week is uh, Daniel Simmons from the Institute for Energy Research. And I think if, if the three of us were ever in a room, and if we also threw in Dan Kish and David Kreitzer from the Heritage Institute, we would, we would have a grand time, the five of us together. 
maybe the five of us together could sort out uh, U.S. energy policy uh, <laughs> with, uh, with those with all of those minds together. Uh, uh, you'd have quite a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, you would. You would have that. In fact, it's interesting that you mentioned U.S. energy policy. I'm on a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm working on uh, as you know. You write a lot as I do, and when you write something weekly with a deadline. You, you know, Wednesday I start thinking about what am I going to write next week. For I usually try to write Friday. I usually end up writing over the weekend for Monday publication. But I start thinking about it on Wednesday. And so I've been thinking about, you know, what am I going to write. And one of those things is that they just announced that uh, the last nuclear power plant in California is going to be shut down. And what struck me in that story, and I'll be interested to see, I'm sure you follow that story as well, what struck me is that the utility company negotiated a settlement with environmental groups. They didn't negotiate a settlement with our elected officials, the Public Regulatory Commission, whatever they call it in California, that they didn't negotiate with the people that are elected to oversee such things. They negotiated with non-elected uh, environmental groups. That shocked me. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, that tells you who's really running, especially in California. You know, in California, this doesn't surprise me at all. If that happened in Texas, it would come as a shock. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, it wouldn't happen in Texas. So, exactly. Um, you, you know, it just shows you who's really running things, and that's true not just in California, but that's true at the federal level where, you know, the government, the, the Obama administration, it's hard for me to know whether they're, they're like puppets dancing to the tune the environmentalists call or whether they are just, you know, part and parcel of the radical environmental movement. Uh, uh, yeah, in, in either way, the end down. result is the same. Either way, the end result is the same. That's right. Higher energy costs for consumers and businesses, uh, the poor uh, as they usually are with laws meant to supposedly help them, the poor suffer the most. Yeah, and good transition there, how you took that from California and the environmentalists right to where we want to go with this segment, which is, you know, one of the things I brought out in my column this week was focused on small rulemakings. Uh, these are not big law changes. These are things that are being done by the Department of Energy, by the Environmental Protection Agency, that people are not even aware of. These are memorandums that President Obama has issued that, that get little attention. And one of the things about these rulemakings, these memorandums, these programs, is they get made with little fanfare. They happen without a big press conference and so forth. But yet it takes years before the impact of those regulations is felt. And by the time that impact is felt, it's too late. It's done. Well, you've got this decades-old federal law that deals with, uh, in part, it deals with efficiency standards for appliances and other things. And there's a whole list of them. You, you look at the old law and you can see all the appliances and you can see you know, what wasn't even around back then that they've had to add subsequently, like computers and things like that. And it's just, like you say, it's, it's sort of routine updating of efficiency standards, except there's nothing routine about how the Obama administration's gone about it. I think, uh, you know, I, I wasn't surprised to read it, but I think I read in your column that during uh, Clinton's years in office, he made eight major rules across his whole term, 
during all eight years, yeah. years um, in, in, the, in 2014 alone, he made six major rules, and so that didn't even count the rest of his term. And these are things like, you know, everyone, everyone thinks it sounds like a good idea. Oh, well, you're upgrading the efficiency standards for air conditioners, so they, so they use less energy. You're updating the efficiency standards of, uh, of uh, other appliances, like dishwashers, so they use less water and less energy. And it sounds nice. It, it sounds nice, but the problem is you already have high energy efficiency appliances out there. If the public wants an energy efficient appliance, it can buy it. What these rules do is they don't make new appliances. They take older appliances off the market that don't meet the new standards. They leave the public with less choice. So I'm a, a, a lower middle class or a poor person or even a middle class person. Look, I got a mortgage and my air conditioner goes out. Or my air conditioner, you know, it's, 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 it's on the edge. And so it's like, I can afford a new air conditioner, but maybe not the highest efficiency air conditioner. Well, and but maybe you don't even need it because maybe because the part of the country that you live in, you only use the air conditioner literally a matter of weeks a year. And so, you know, having the highest efficiency is not really justifiable. The cost isn't justifiable in your case. Well, I, I know, but... but, but in that case, you just keep your old air conditioner, and there's no problem. But, but, if, but if it broke, if it broke and you need a new one, you're not going to want to buy the highest, most expensive efficiency for a few, you know, weeks worth of use. For a few weeks a year, yeah, I, I get your point, and and you're right. But and so my choice is go without air because I can't afford the most, the highest, the new minimum standard set by the federal government, uh, or keep an old, really inefficient right. energy unit, you know, air conditioner limping along, and uh, and sometimes at a danger to myself because, look, these parts, they, they wear out. Um, I, I found out just this week about blowers and things because my air conditioner went out. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> How's uh, the air, uh, yeah, no, and the air is like, uh, it starts blowing and all of a sudden you hear something winding down. And then you hear this, it's like, that means the, the, the electrical system is still working, but your blower's not, and you can burn up the whole system, or you can start throwing uh, electrical parts, it turns out, uh, metal parts to your walls. So you shut, off your, you shut it off, and you hope for the repairman gets your equipment. The point is, do I want to keep repairing the old unit, or would I rather have a newer unit that maybe is not the top efficiency, but still would be better than what I've got? Well, my choice, you know, if, if I were lower middle classes, you, you keep the old unit limping along because I can't afford the new units. And, and the problem is, that's one problem. A second problem is you keep older units on the road, you know, running longer. The second problem is the costs are never paid for in these energy savings, and often these products just don't meet, don't, do what they promised to do. You know, a few years ago, they were banning incandescent light bulbs, and we were going to all go to, to uh, uh, CFLs. And CFLs were going to save us so much energy. Yeah, they cost more, but over time, you save, you save energy. Well, that works if CFLs work under, you know, ideal laboratory conditions. But when they break uh, or, or burn out two years earlier than they're supposed to, um, when they're hard to dispose of, you end up never recouping the costs 
And so you're just throwing money down the drain. And that's what so many of these government efficiency programs do, is they end up forcing, they, they take away consumer choice, they add costs, and they don't meet efficiency goals. Yeah, you know, on the CFLs, light bulbs are one of my favorite topics, which is why I addressed the LED light bulbs in the Fannie Mae building in this week's column, because light bulbs are one of my favorite topics. I don't have a problem with uh, CFL if consumer wants them. I don't have a problem with LEDs if the consumer wants them. My husband likes LEDs. He's changing our whole house out to, to LEDs a little at a time because they're so expensive. So I don't have a problem with them if the consumer wants them. What I have a problem with is the government taking away the, the lower-priced option of the incandescent light bulb, and that's exactly what you're talking about here with the, with the air conditioning, for example. They've taken away that lower-cost option. The higher-priced options were already there, but they've removed that lower-price option. It's similar to the CAFE standard, corporate average fuel economy standards yeah. for cars. Look, we... Another one of my favorite fuel, topics. Yeah, there are fuel-efficient cars on the road. If consumers want that, if fuel efficiency is their most important uh, uh, criteria for buying a car, they can get, yeah, drivers, they can get fuel-efficient cars. The government doesn't have to force those on the road. But most people don't choose their cars primarily based on fuel efficiency. They have other needs that fuel-efficient cars just don't meet. I mean, there's a reason why the Ford F-150, despite the fact that it may be the most fuel-efficient truck or may not be the most fuel-efficient truck on the highway today, it's still a lot less fuel-efficient than, you know, hybrids or many other gasoline-powered mid-size and, and small but, but it does a whole lot but of it's things. The number one seller. Yeah. But it's the number one seller, and there's a reason for that. It satisfies drivers' demands for power, for comfort, for the ability to haul things, which small cars just don't do. And, and you and I would agree that that should be what's driving innovation and policy. Well, I think policy should stab it all together. The only thing driving what products go onto the market shouldn't be government dictates, government designs, government goals. It should be what do the consumers want. Yeah, free and that's market. shown by what they purchase freely in the marketplace. Yeah, and what they purchase freely is not what uh, what what the government tends to mandate. We just got a couple minutes left, Sterling. Let's jump to that Fannie Mae building uh, that I addressed yeah. in my column and the president's uh, memorandum demanding higher energy efficiency. What's your observation there? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's another one of those sounds good in theory, feel good measures that doesn't pan out in practice. You know, the government's own watchdog has found that, what did you say, it, it, the building added 53% to the yes. cost of the building to make these upgrades. And the only two upgrades they could point to that would actually reduce energy use supposedly is adding shades to the building and adding LED lights. That shouldn't add 53% to the cost of the building. So this, this is government bureaucrats run amok. This is, they want a nice office. They want a good uh, cafe on the rooftop or uh, a garden on the rooftop. They want, you know... I think you mentioned enclosed glass uh, uh, yeah. walkways bridges. or bridges. Uh, yeah, you know, crazy. All very pretty. And if you're a wealthy billionaire and that's what you want in your building, but the yeah, if it's in Trump Tower, go for it. Yeah, if it's in Trump Tower, go for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and especially with that agency and conservatorship, uh, because we, the taxpayers, uh, have provided Great discussion, Sterling. We're about out of time, but as always, it's a treat to talk with you. And the bottom line comes down to it should be uh, consumer choice, free market, uh, making these policies, or not policies, but that, that uh, we should have those choices. Yes, it's, consumers, should, through their purchases, should be determining what products go to the marketplace, not government through its uh, lofty ideals, which don't work out in practice. Yep. Thanks again, Sterling Burnett from the Heartland Institute for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we're talking about how regulations have a kind of an insidious result, that they, they percolate through the system, and by the time that we, the consumers, feel the impact of those regulations, it's really too late to do anything about them. For example, the coal mines have been closed. The power plants have been shut down. And in this segment, we're going to be talking with Stephen Yurick, who is the president and CEO of the Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute. Who knew there was such a thing? But he gave testimony on Congress, Congressional Hill, sorry about that, on June 10th about the impact of regulations and how they're raising the cost and therefore uh, really reducing the efficiency for consumers. So, Steve, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. I very much appreciate being here. You know, when I found out about this testimony that you gave, I read through the whole thing, and you bring up stuff that nobody thinks about, and that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your testimony and why I incorporated it into my article and also why I'm glad you're here with us today because I like to address topics that most people are not aware of. I don't want to just rehash the same old stuff that everybody hears on the news, but I like to present something new 
and something different. And, and you know, like I said earlier in my introduction, whoever knew there was an air conditioning, heating, and refrigeration institute, and uh, just never knew there was such a thing. But you bring up an important point about these uh, regulations and how they really make the equipment uh, be priced beyond what the consumer, what many consumers can afford. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, the, uh, the law that we're talking about is the Energy Policy Conservation Act that was actually signed by Gerald Ford back in the, the 70s at the, the end of his presidency, giving the DOE the authority to, to regulate the efficiency of a, a whole host of uh, household uh, appliances as well as mechanical equipment such as your air conditioner, furnace, boiler, water heater. And as, as part of these rules, what... Uh, was required of DOE was that they needed to look at it and weigh the technical feasibility and the economic justification. And really what that meant is that they wanted to set a bar, you know, a minimum level, but it was supposed to raise slowly. And, and, to, and to do that, to make sure that consumers could still afford to purchase that equipment and use it because it was more important that they purchase new equipment rather than repairing old, less efficient uh, equipment that they have in their homes. Um, and what we've seen is that that balance has shifted considerably uh, away from the economic uh, feasibility to, you know, really going to the, the most efficient they can possibly push and, yet, and continue to justify, even if most consumers that purchase that equipment will have no benefit throughout the useful life of that equipment. It will actually cost them more up front, and it will cost them more through the entire uh, life cycle of that piece of equipment. So, so, so wait a, a moment. Wait, wait a moment here. So what you're saying is that while this equipment may be more energy efficient, the amount of money the consumer will save on this energy is less than the increase in the upfront cost? Uh, in, 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 in some cases, and we're seeing more and more uh, as these rules are coming out, that the, the consumers that will receive a benefit uh, are, are less and less. You know, when we, in the earlier administrations, uh, as they were implementing this law, um, they were, there was more uh, focus on the, the economic justification and, and making sure that uh, not, at least a majority, of, a super majority of consumers would have a, a benefit over the life of the, the equipment. Now we're seeing in some cases where rules are coming out where less than 50% of the people um, that purchase that equipment uh, will receive a benefit, and, and we think that's just the, the wrong way to go, and it's the wrong way not only for consumers but also for the economy. So what has precipitated this? I mean, why, why are they, we going uh, to this extreme direction? Um, well, there's several things that uh, kind of uh, call it a perfect storm. You have the mandates put in by Congress uh, as part of uh, many changes that occurred in 2005 uh, energy bill um, that mandated that DOE uh, issue rules every six, new rules every six years uh, on equipment. And then you had the current administration that came in and as part of the President's Climate Action Plan, one of the three pillars is energy efficiency. And so they're using uh, these energy efficiency rules to, again, further the meeting of the climate action plan that the president has laid out. 
So that's a key driver in uh, this push to really more expensive equipment. It, it, it's one of those drivers. Uh, it's also the, you know, the desire to, to make sure that, uh, you know, there is a legacy of, of high energy efficiency um, that uh, this administration wants to, to have uh, as they move forward. And um, it's having a significant impact on consumers, uh, not so much today, but as these rules become implemented over the next three to five years, um, when somebody has to go purchase a new air conditioner, a new furnace, uh, a new uh, water heater or a clothes dryer or a range or a, a refrigerator, they're going to see that it's going to cost more. And the reason most of the cases is not because of uh, the different uh, attributes of that uh, equipment, but because of these requirements of having minimum, you know, efficiency or, or making it more efficient and using less energy. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up, that, that this is going to be years down the road, because that's kind of one of the themes of what I, I talked about in my column this week, that, that these, these regulations, rules, programs, memorandums, there's all kinds of little, little uh, tinkering at the edges that's going on that people are not even aware of, and uh, those impacts are going to be felt on down the road. Uh, very true. I mean, uh, most of the these cases, uh, even though the rule went out uh, last year or even two years ago, there's a, a period of time, uh, anywhere from three to five years before they become uh, effective, and uh, and so we're really going to be seeing it now uh, over the next two or three years. Uh, these impacts as people look at the, the price of uh, new appliances and uh, equipment. So. Would, would the industry, you're, you're representing the air conditioning, heating, and refrigeration industry, would the industry be producing ever more efficient equipment without these regulations? Uh, they already are. Um, and uh, all this equipment, uh, again, uh, this industry uh, believes in, uh, you know, the wise use and, you know, environmental stewardship and, and energy efficiency. Um, but there's also consumer choice. And so there's a wide range everywhere from the, the federal minimums to significantly above the federal minimum where products are currently available. And those decisions uh, today for that more highly efficient equipment are being made by consumers that decide that they want to have that higher equipment, you know, that, that's something that they are willing to pay additional money for. Uh, it makes sense because of their energy bills in their area or the use of their equipment, like in Florida, Texas, New Mexico, where there is a lot of use of air conditioning there. It might make sense to have a more efficient piece of equipment because you are going to have a benefit because of energy costs uh, in the future, and it is available. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing out the, that that regional thing, that if you, if you are in an area where it's very hot and you need a lot of air conditioning, you're, you're apt to be willing to spend that extra money to get that higher quality equipment and that better energy savings uh, because I find that so often the regulations that are coming out are kind of a one-size-fits-all policy. And that's one of the problems with regulations overall being done at the federal level rather than the state level is that they don't account for those regional differences. Um, that's one area where industry, um, and we were the ones that had Gerald Ford 
uh, sign this law uh, because we'd rather have one rule versus 50. Um, and, and what we were seeing back in the 70s and again in the 80s is that um, a lot of these decisions were being made by one or two states, in particular California, were right. implementing efficiency regulations that because of how this equipment is sold and designed, they were deciding for the entire country what was going on or what would be sold. And we'd much rather have a much more open process, which the federal law provided. Um, and, uh, yeah, I can, see, I can see where that makes sense uh, on a basic level because you can't have a, your, you don't have individual air conditioning manufacturers making equipment for every single state. And uh, that, I can see where that makes sense. Right. And, you know, and I think there, again, in what we're looking at and what my testimony said is, you know, that was, this law is 40 years old. And, you know, you know, anything that's 40 years old, a lot of things have changed, not only the technology but the economy and everything else. And I think we just need to look at it again and say, is there a better way to do this to make sure that we're not causing consumers to have, in, you know, increased costs, but at the same time, we're promoting, you know, the uh, energy efficiency and environmental stewardship that I think all of us want, that we want that independence and other things, but also we want that consumer choice and, and help in making those right decisions so they can evaluate, you know, is it worth the, the extra cost up front for the savings that they'll see over the, the life of the equipment. So you think that some federal baseline regulation is appropriate, but uh, that at this point we've kind of gotten carried away with that? Yes, I, I think we, the balance is, is, is the wrong direction, and we need to get back to the economic justification and, and, and support to make sure that it makes sense because we want consumers to use and replace their old equipment um, with new equipment rather than repair. You know, a prime example is at the end of the uh, Clinton administration, uh, on the last night, uh, this was a midnight rule, uh, President Clinton signed uh, a rule that increased the minimum efficiency for central air conditioners by 30%. That rule had a significant impact not only for consumers and costs, but also for the industry. Back then, we, we had over 8 million units shipped every year and installed in the U.S. To date, and I understand there's been economic issues that have occurred and economic downturn and everything else, you still have not yet reached over 8 million units shipped again. And what we've seen instead is that consumers are continuing to repair or purchase window air conditioners or other things versus replacing the, their old central air conditioning system with a new one. So we, have, we haven't saved any energy, and, and consumers aren't, are making do with things that aren't making them as comfortable or as safe as it should be uh, in their homes. Well, yeah, that's a perfect example to, to close on, and we're out of time. Uh, but I appreciate your sharing that because it really brings out that, that point of the cost factor of what the consumers are willing to spend and that comfort safety uh, margin there. So uh, any last comments you have? We just have a few seconds left, Steve. No, I just want to thank you and uh, uh, look forward to continuing this conversation as, as we move forward and make sure that consumers are aware of what impacts them. 
I appreciate it. We've been talking with Stephen Yurk, who is the president and CEO of the Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute. And in my column this week, there is a link to this testimony if you want to read it. I found it fascinating, but I realize I'm a bit into this. So thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about Obama's energy policies and how they really end up killing jobs, uh, hurting consumers, and costing taxpayers. And here now to discuss this topic with us is Daniel Simmons, Vice President for Policy at the Institute for Energy Research. So, Dan, I appreciate you joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. Well, thanks for having me back, Marita. Well, you know, you and I could talk forever on, on these energy policies as we both follow them very, very closely. But today we're going to talk specifically about the uh, Obama administration's initiatives for green buildings and the supposed energy savings that are going to result from them. So I, I understand that your office building um, in Washington, D.C., where you work, is directly across the street. Is that, am I right from where the new Fannie Mae building is going to be? That is, that is correct. So have they started building yet or done anything? Uh, they, uh, they, they haven't started any building yet. They're currently in the, in the uh, middle of demolition. And uh, okay. as, as someone that has a two-and-a-half-year-old son, um, demolition is pretty cool um, <laughs> because they have 10 excavators. But one of the things is, I, you know, as I walk past or ride my bike past that building every day on the way to work, it just blows my mind the amount of money that they're spending. And, you know, uh, as we were just talking uh, just before we went on the air, the inspector general just came out with a, with a report that said, hey, you guys are spending way, way, way too much money on this, on this new building. Yeah, and, and some of those those expenses are uh, on green energy issues as a result, I believe, of the president's uh, 2013 initiative. Uh, that's that's exactly right. Whenever you have, uh, you know, one of the things that the administration has been trying to do is to push green building. They try to uh, have new green building codes around the country. Uh, these are new energy efficiency building codes among other things. And really when it comes down to it, when you start to look into what, you know, people are talking about as green buildings, 
I mean, it, it really looks like it really looks like a scam. And you know, for example, with this with the with Fannie Mae's new building, I mean, any of your listeners, please Google Fannie Mae's Washington D.C. building, and you see like these. You know, it's it, it's going to be a pretty cool looking building. As, as someone that might enjoy some of the uh, aesthetic value, hey, that's okay. However, it costs seven hundred and seventy million dollars for this thing. Once, uh, once you get the cost of the lease and the cost of the new building. And so they, they promote this as being a green building with green rooftops and all this other stuff. But when you look at it, it's like these big glass cubes. Now, if you were truly concerned about energy efficiency, if this is the number one thing for you, you are not building glass cubes. You're building stuff with insulation. Yeah. You know, I mean, Washington, D.C. is warm. I mean, it's warm in the, in the summer. It's cold in the winter. Well, not super cold, but, you know. Um, if it's something that you're going to have insulation, glass can't do it all, and that's the that's a that's that's part of how this is just a just a complete scam. So, what are some of the things that uh, what you know we're, that we've talked about that Fannie Mae building, and I and I love your point about the glass windows because they're certainly not what you do. And you know the the heat comes in, the sun pours in and makes it hot, and in the in the winter the cold uh, pours off it. In my home in New Mexico. In the winter, I've got double pane glass, but I just walk past. I've got I've got a great view, and I've got a wall of windows, and I walk past those windows, and I can just feel the cold rolling off of those windows. And so I have curtains that are you know have insulation lining that I had made to fit these windows because it was so cold. The cold was coming in now in the summer. I never shut them, but in the winter, I never opened them for for energy efficiency purposes. What are some of the other examples that may or may not have to do with the Fannie Mae building, but that have to do with this whole idea of green building? Well, one of the, one of the ways that we've seen green buildings, uh, you know, to date is in green schools, as in, you know, people talk about school districts want to build a new building, and one of the things that they talk about is, oh, we're going to build a, we're going to build a green building. It's going to be a green school, and, and the students are going to, perform much better in this new green school. Well, there's a guy named Todd Myers at the Washington Policy Center who has, you know, been looking at this issue now for, for the last 10 years. And, you know, he, he has been really deep in looking at the, the schools that uh, people were using and then the replacement schools and then digging into their actual energy use. And it turns out that in many of these buildings, they, they don't save any energy whatsoever. Um, so we have some real... We have some real case histories that are out there where an older school was torn down or replaced with a new school um, that, that meets these green building codes? Yes, and, and because much of the green building codes are not really about energy efficiency. You know, one of the things that people talk about is this, uh, it's not Energy Star, and then I'm totally spacing on the name of it, but these, but these certain certificate lead L-E-E-D, yeah. And, right. for example, you can get credits if you have a bike rack for your building. Now, a bike rack has nothing to do with the energy efficiency, but those are the sorts of things that you can do so you can get a LEED-certified building, and so people think it's green. And one of the things that Todd looked at, too, is on some of these schools, they did actually save, save some energy. However, it would take 40 to 100 years to recoup the, you know, the additional costs of of these uh, these buildings, so I mean, it's just it's just ridiculous, um, you know. When it comes so, to so, so we could probably yeah. we could probably extrapolate some of that experience 
into the Fannie Mae building. That while they're, you know, the what I picked up on with the Fannie Mae building is the fact that one of the only two examples that were given in defense of um, this expensive building is, well, we put in energy-efficient LED light bulbs. And, you know, they're like five times the cost. I mean, I don't know what the commercial building prices are, but I know from my home an LED light bulb is about five times the cost of a fluorescent light bulb, and a fluorescent light bulb is about five times the cost of an incandescent light bulb. And I'm, in my opinion, I'm going to be out of this house long before the LED light bulbs would ever pay off. So, I mean, and, and this is really what it comes down to with energy efficiency, is that there are some cases where, where it makes sense and others that don't. If you use the light a ton, you can probably, you know, recoup the, um, the benefits over, you know, you know, 10 years or something like that for those LED light bulbs. In my house, I replaced a number of light bulbs with the LED bulbs because the because there's some, um, our house was built in the 1940s, and there is, uh, we used to always trip the circuit breaker. We put in, you know, 15 LED lights, and we don't trip the circuit breaker anymore. I mean, that's where, that's the sort of thing that, you know, that where energy efficiency works. You know, it, it, it isn't, and, and really what it comes down to is that we don't need to mandate this stuff. People are smart. People look at their electricity bills. You know, people, when they're building a new building, they think about how to make their building energy efficient because no one wants to spend more money for energy. That's, no one actually wants to do that. However, <laughs> everybody is balancing. You know, if I spend more money for energy, I could have, you know, certain other things. Um, you know, and, it, 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 and that's, what, that's what is so frustrating is everyone is balancing, like, and automobiles are another really good example where, you know, when it comes to buying a car, energy efficiency is important to everyone. However, it is seldom the most important thing, or everyone would be driving these, you know, tiny little go-cars. Um, but, no, we want cars with a number of features that, that take care of us in our lives, that give us options. And so that's the same thing we need with, with buildings, and that's the, that's the problem with this mindset coming out of the Obama administration, coming out of the administration, that they know better than us, that they know better than architects, that they know better than business owners, um, trying to, you know, because what they're trying to do is to mandate green building standards. And what that really means is the upfront costs are going to be more, and you might not save all that much money in the end. However, it is helpful for certain, uh, you know, for certain people that are building buildings, for certain people in the industry. And that's really the that's really the travesty here. It's just just let the market work. Just let people figure out what's good for their lives, as opposed to mandating, reducing people's options, and driving up costs. Yeah, and that's exactly what we talked about with Steve Urich uh, in our previous segment. And in he deals, of course, specifically with air conditioning, heating, and refrigeration systems, and a lot of it's commercial. But he talked about how they they keep making these uh, regulations, uh, new rulemaking, say you've got to be more efficient and more efficient. And you mentioned cars. And, you know, I liken that to the, um, you know, the CAFE standards, that President Obama has mandated that we have a certain level of fleet efficiency, which has, uh, is, is really beyond where the technology is, but has forced the automobile industry into some areas such as electric cars, that the market isn't calling for. Oh, that's that's exactly right, and it's going to be a real problem. The most the most uh, popular vehicle, as in the vehicle that, that sold more than any other last year and has for years now, 
is the Ford F-Series truck. Um, currently, the 2016 model, 40% of, of, the, of the trucks do not meet CAFE standards for 2016, let alone for 2017 or later. So, and on top of that, the price of trucks, the price of, you know, smaller trucks, as in not semis, but, uh, you know, light-duty right, vehicles. Pickup trucks. Pickup trucks has increased 24% over the past eight years. So it's, it's increased much faster than other vehicles because, hey, it's kind of, t it, it, it's really tough to make those, you know, more and more and more energy efficient. I mean, Ford has spent billions you know, of dollars. All the people who drive those trucks, including my husband, want power. Well, exactly, because you want to do stuff with your truck. You want to pull trailers. Maybe you need to, you know, haul around a bunch of stuff. And so it's, and, and that is the problem. If, if those trucks are already increasing in cost now, um, you know, just wait. And that's a, that's a real problem going forward. And, again, the whole point is in this effort to save energy, you're reducing people's transportation options. That only will have additional costs in the future, especially when it comes to pickup trucks, I mean, that is, that is a workhorse of the economy. And when you drive up those costs, we're going to, you know, drive up the cost of all kinds of goods and services, especially all construction that, you know, that, that pickup trucks are used all the time. And so when we're increasing those costs, it just makes the economy less efficient overall and, uh, you know, harms the, harms the overall economy in the end. Yeah, and, and what makes me nuts is, again, the, the, the mandates. I mean, as you said, People don't want to spend more on, on energy. They like the fuel efficiency, but in other cases, you know, you need that power or you, you know. So what I struggle with is the government coming in and saying, you know, you will use this light bulb or, you, or you know, you will drive this kind of vehicle or you, they're taking away our freedom of choice. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, if you look over time, over the last 20 years or so at, say, a Honda Accord. The Honda Accord, as in, uh, from a couple years ago, and, and looking to about, uh, you know, back 20 years, the Honda Accord gets about the same gas mileage. However, the Honda Accord today is a much bigger car. It's a much nicer car. It's a car with a lot more passenger room, a lot more trunk space than, you know, a, a Honda Accord from, uh, from you know, the, the mid-'90s. And, but that's just what has happened over time. People care about energy efficiency without a doubt. However, when it comes to, you know, all these decisions, people want a little bit more comfort. They want more room. They want more flexibility. They want to be able to take more stuff. And that's why all of these mandates come at a cost, and that cost is paid by, you know, regular Americans. It's not really paid. You know, the bureaucrats that sit around here in Washington, D.C. and make up this crap, they don't bear the brunt. The people that bear the brunt is everyday Americans. They get their they get their choices taken away from them. And Daniel Simmons, we got to end it right there. But that's a perfect wrap up for what we're ta what we've been talking about today. We've been talking with Daniel Simmons, Vice President for Policy at the Institute for Energy Resource Research. Excuse me. And that wraps it up for today's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.